Australia's military history is more than just a collection of dates and the locations of war-ravaged battlefields. It is the stories of service and sacrifice of those who have answered the call of their country of birth or adoption and the enduring legacy they have created. Join me as we look into one of those stories. I'm your host, Ross Manuel, and welcome to I Was Only Doing My Job, Australia's Military History, a Doc Network podcast. Now let's get started. Over the past two episodes, I've introduced you to Ralph Honor. He was born on the 17th of August, 1904, as Hyacinth Ralph Honor, named in honour of St. Hyacinth of Poland, the patron saint of those in danger of drowning, whose feast day shares his birth. He was employed both as a lawyer and a teacher before he joined the Australian Imperial Force as part of the original allotment to the 2nd 11th Australian Infantry Battalion. He served throughout the battalion's initial involvement in the North African campaign, including in the captures of Bardia and Tobruk, before serving as a commander as a rearguard action in the disastrous British campaign in Greece. Now, as we continue the story of Ralph Honor, we join him and the other survivors of the 2nd 11th in the convoy of warships and troop transports headed for the tiny island of Crete. While most of the 2nd 11th travelled aboard the troop ship SS Thurline Castle, Honor travelled aboard the comparative luxury of the British destroyer HMS Hasty. There he apparently slept in the captain's cabin and enjoyed a breakfast of sausages and eggs. Even though he did lament that even with these creature comforts, he was doing so without any of his personal effects, as he could only bring with him what he, military equipment he was carrying at the time of the evacuation. Not long after boarding the HMS Hasty, Honor and the survivors of the second raising of the Anzac Corps landed in Crete and humped eight miles inland. From a strategic standpoint, back in October 1940, Britain considered Crete to be strategically important as it possessed three airfields and a deep water port that would allow the Royal Navy to operate in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Royal Air Force to be able to strike at German positions in Southern Europe and in particular, Romanian oil fields. Now in April 1941, those same strategic assets were no longer as strategic as the island lacked suitable road and rail infrastructure to support troop movements and the port lacked modern facilities that would allow for rapid resupply or evacuation. Despite the fact that the island had been occupied by British forces since October, Nothing had been done with it, and according to the Australian official war historian, Gavin Long, quote, Although the possibility of an evacuation from Greece had been in mind since early March, plans and preparations to defend Crete against a major attack not initiated until the middle of April. Much that could have been done in the meantime remained undone, unquote. As a result, the force that defended Crete on the 26th of April, 1941, consisted of two-thirds of the New Zealand division, and a conglomerate of soldiers of the 19th and 17th Australian Infantry Brigades organised as the 19th Australian Brigade Group and did not have enough equipment or supplies to sustain them. As well, did not have any heavy artillery or armour. The remaining survivors from Greece were sent to Alexandria due to those limited stockpiles of supplies on the island. There was also a British brigade already garrisoned on the island and approximately 13 Greek battalions that were a mix of training battalions and units evacuated from the mainland. The Greeks had little to no equipment or ammunition. In total, there was approximately 39,000 British and Dominion troops defending the island who dug in and waited for the German onslaught. As the Allied troops waited, Honor and the rest of the Australian forces attempted to recover following the evacuation. They trained and established the perimeter in the Retimo sector. On the 8th of May, Honor and the rest of the 2nd 11th were relocated to the left flank of the 5km Retimo perimeter near the village of Palantias, linking the Greek 4th Battalion with the 2nd 1st Australian Infantry Battalion on the hills that covered the east-west road, the airfield, and the village of PG. Don't worry, I'll include maps in the show notes. 
Once this position was established, Honor and the rest of his men routinely bartered with the locals for essentials as the Allied supply lines prevented adequate rations and supplies to be brought forward, and also immersed themselves in the Cretan culture, including frequenting the beach. Despite the illusion of easy living on a Mediterranean island, the Australian troops, like the rest of the Allied force, became experts at concealment. And according to Gavin Long, quote, If in the event one of the defenders' positions was located and photographed by a German reconnaissance plane, it was quickly moved, unquote. By the 17th of May, the garrison on Crete included about 15,000 Britons, 7,750 New Zealanders, 6,500 Australians, and 10,200 Greeks under the command of New Zealand Major General Bernard Freeburg, VC. General Freeburg had requested that all military personnel that lacked weapons or had, quote, little or no employment other than getting into trouble with the civil population, unquote, off the island. As the threat grew closer, however, General Freeburg drew up his paltry force and identified that Crete was going to be defended from four locations spread across the island. Running from west to east, first the western sector based around Kanea would be defended by the New Zealand contingent. Suda Bay, the only major port in the island, would be defended by the British and Greek contingent. The next sectors would be from the resort town of Georgiopolis to Retimo, and would comprise most of the Australian contingent, and the fourth sector from Heraklion would comprise most of the British force and Australian battalion, and the remainder of the Greek forces. Despite the three airfields on the island, there was only 42 Allied aircraft scattered between four squadrons available for defence. In all, the force under General Freeburg's command greatly suffered in terms of training, equipment and stores, but also lacked artillery support and naval resupply owing to the German air dominance and the primitive port facilities. What it did have, however, was a dogged resolve that would be tested when the Germans attacked on the 20th of May, 1941. At 9am, Honor and his platoon leaders watched spellbound at the sight of 14 lumbering German troop planes heading towards them before suddenly veering off towards the Malama airfield in the first sector. This was followed at midday by another group of 20 troop carriers crossing their positions and headed for Herklion. Despite the agony of having to watch the war unfold around them, finally at 4pm, German fighters and transports from the Luftwaffe crossed the Cretan border at Retimo. The German attack, codenamed Operation Mercury, initially called for three simultaneous airborne landings with the bulk of the force focused on the larger Malama airfield, with the intention of capturing it to allow for reinforcements to be flown in, a tactic they had perfected in their invasions of Denmark, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, France and mainland Greece. Subsequent objectives would be the other two airfields as well as securing road junctions and villages. Honor marvelled at the 15-minute display of German Fallschirmjägers jumping from their planes. Many of those planes were on fire, but still had their formation. Honor recalled to his wife Marjorie that they looked like, quote, lines of little dolls sprouting silken mushrooms that stayed and studied them, unquote. Thanks to Allied policy of concealment and relocation, the German High Command completely misread the size and composition of the Allied force on the island, initially believing only 5,000 personnel defended it, not the 39,450 strong force. Well, the other obstacle that plagued initial German landings was the complete lack of intelligence on the location of Allied positions. What resulted can only be described as a 35-minute slaughter along the entire perimeter in which saw most of the German paratroopers being killed while still descending. So devastating would this resistance be that Germany would never attempt another airborne landing during the war. Despite the losses sustained to the Fallschirmjäger on the descent, by afternoon enough would have made it to the ground alive to seek cover and commence firing back. This was assisted by the devastating German air superiority that forced the defenders to move at night to be able to reinforce each other. The lack of armour or adequate transport to effectively launch a counterattack and the appalling communications network on the island that was so bad that a commander couldn't even effectively communicate with her own perimeter. 
This disconnection resulted in General Freeburg not fighting a singular defense of the island, but four separate battles that couldn't communicate or support each other or their commander. While Honor and the rest of the 2nd 11th enjoyed some early successes in the campaign, the inability to concentrate the Allied response to deal with the German assault meant it was all over in 10 days. Honor could do little but try and hold on as the 2nd 11th, like the rest of the Allied garrison, was whittled down, and Honor would lament to his wife Marjorie the pain of having to send men of his command to their deaths needlessly. And on more than one occasion, he filled in the role of a platoon commander or message runner. While this act endeared him further to the men of his command, this willingness to never request a task to be done that he wasn't prepared to do so himself, as a company commander and battalion executive officer, his priority should have prohibited such risks. On the 26th of May, General Freeburg informed General Archibald Wavell, Commander-in-Chief Middle East, that the Battle of Crete had been lost, and the following day, Wavell ordered an evacuation. Unfortunately, Colonel Ian Campbell, Australian commander of the Retimo sector and commanding officer of the 2nd 1st, was unaware of this initial plan despite several attempts to get word to the Australians. On the 29th of May 1941, as Honor redeployed what remained of C Company, a force of little more than 60 officers and men, around the town of Perivolia, when a message was dropped on the sector, it read simply, quote, Waratah's Bulleye, Puckapunyal St Kilda, Groper's Albany, Bog and Hoppet, unquote. Now this random string of words would have meant nothing to Germans or really anyone else who wasn't Australian. The Australian force in Crete comprised of men of New South Wales, whose state flower is the Waratah, Victorians whose main military base was Puckapunyal, and West Australians were colloquially known as Sandgropers. Bulleye, St Kilda and Albany were all coastal towns in these respective states. Bog and Hoppet, according to Gavin Long, meant fight your way out, get moving. So translated to common English, that message read, Soldiers of New South Wales, Victoria and Western Australia, fight your way to the coast and get moving. The order to retreat had been given, but the situation was far from ideal, as German forces stood between the beleaguered Australians and the road south. With no other options available, with no food, ammunition and rising casualties, Colonel Campbell proposed surrendering. However, Major Alan Sandover, commanding officer of the 2nd 11th, had other ideas. He gave the men under his command a different option. They could surrender, or they could destroy their weapons and take to the hills, make it to the coast and try to get back to Egypt. Honor passed the word to his men and steadily withdrew what was left of his company back towards the coast. Sadly, despite his best efforts in his own words, quote, C Company as a fighting force ceased to exist. Here in Crete, where so many of the bravest of the brave had fallen, it could vaunt no victory, but to the end of its last battle, its devoted remnants have borne themselves manfully. The strong sustaining the weak, and the weak not faltering in the blackest moments of disaster, there were no sign of panic, no selfish action, nor bitter word. Their arms have been defeated, but the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune could not shake their sturdy spirit, unquote. For their time on Crete, the 2nd 11th would sustain 53 killed, 126 wounded, and 423 become prisoners of war including most of what remained of C Company. The battalion suffered higher casualties than any other Australian unit on the island, and Colonel Campbell would be one of 25,328 British and Commonwealth prisoners of war from the campaign. Honor would lead a ragtag group of survivors towards Aegea Galini on the southern coast of Crete in the hopes of acquiring transport off the island by hook or by crook. When they arrived, however, they found 300 British troops and set to work fixing what boats they could find to try to make get off the island. Some of these attempts were successful, managing to reach Alexandria to inform British command of troops that still required rescue, while others were captured by the Germans. Honor would continue to evade the Germans while he awaited rescue, 
and in fact narrowly escaped capture when a German unit entered a Giagolini and took the British forces to their prisoner. Honor and a number of Australian survivors were several miles upriver at the time making use of a swimming pool they had commandeered into a base camp and regularly visited. They only discovered what had happened when they returned to the town to find it occupied by Germans. On the 9th of June 1941, Captain Ralph Honor would be listed as missing in action and Marjorie would receive a telegram stating that he was, quote, missing in action, believed killed, unquote. This scene was duplicated an additional 53 times around the Great Southern Farming Belt where Honor lived. For the next three months, Honor hid in the caves around Apadulu, supported by local Christian population, until he and 120 Australian, New Zealand, British and Greek troops were evacuated aboard the Royal Navy submarine HMS Torbay. It would seem that Honor and the position of ranking officer of this motley crew truly lived up to his canonised namesake. Only 13 officers and 39 other ranks of the 2nd 11th managed to escape to Egypt. One of them was Ralph Honor. There would only be a tiny drop out of the 18,600 British and Dominion troops that were evacuated. Honor reported back to Alexandria on the 23rd of August, and after a brief period of convalescent leave in Cairo, Honor was transferred from the regimental supernumerary list and reassigned to the rank of temporary major to the 2nd 11th, or at least the shell of the former battalion had become, as it licked its wounds in Palestine and undertook the arduous task of replenishing its depleted ranks. By the end of September, Honor's promotion to major was made substantive, and the 2nd 11th had been relocated to Syria to prepare defensive positions against either a Vichy French or German invasion, before he was called back to I Corps headquarters and used his legal experience, served as prosecutor in a series of courts martial. At the end of these proceedings, Honor had been informed that he had been given command of the 19th Training Battalion on the 30th October 1941 and was bound for Australia. It was the practice of the AIF at the time to have a training battalion corresponding with every brigade and commanded on a rotational basis by officers of that brigade. This was so they could pass on their experience and expertise to the reinforcements while they were sent to join the men at the front line to complete their training. Honor would ring in the new year with the news he had been awarded the military cross for his service in Greece and would depart for Australia aboard the transport the Cunard Ocean Liner RMS Laconia on the 13th of March 1942. He would then go on to transfer to the Katoomba on the 25th and later the Holbrook on the 30th. He would arrive in the 5th Military District of Western Australia on the 14th of March 1942. Interesting side note, the Laconia would end up being sunk by U-156 on the 12th of September 1942 and would go down into history, would be one of the largest ships sunk by U-boats during the war. Upon his return to Australia, Honor and Marjorie were able to spend a week together before he had to report to the 19th Training Battalion headquarters. And this period of marital bliss only seemed to cause an issue for their children, with the youngest Brian, who was already three at the time, reporting to the nuns who ran his daycare, quote, there's a strange man cuddling mummy in the bedroom, unquote. For the children, Honor was little more than a photo on the mantle than an actual person. He, along with his staff, would go on to take over the northern camp roughly 94 kilometres east-northeast from Perth and oversee the training of a number of militia battalions. While Honor had been in the Middle East with the 6th, 7th and 9th Divisions, the defence of Australia initially fell to the 8th Division and the militia, which comprised the two cavalry divisions and four and a half infantry divisions, or the equivalent of what Australia fielded during the previous war. Now, while on paper that would seem impressive, However, priority had been given to the forces in North Africa in terms of leadership, manpower, and material. There was a critical shortage of this in the Pacific, which was only exacerbated when the 8th Division was lost during the surrender of Singapore a month to the day of Honor's arrival. This meant that the defence of Australia fell to the militia, a force of men either too old or too young to serve in the AIF and with equipment deemed not suitable for, to be taken overseas. 
If these handicaps weren't bad enough, the men of the militia also had to contend with the stigma of being referred to as chocos, short of chocolate soldiers, by the men of the AIF. The reasoning behind this so-called term of endearment came from the fact that they had a higher rate of pay to the men of the AIF and all had the trappings of soldiers, but due to the 1903 Defence Act, they were restricted to Australia and her territories and such were simply for show. If they were to fight, they would melt under the pressure. On the flip side, the militia regarded the AIF as arrogant. As the Japanese continued their advance southward to isolate Australia, they landed troops in the Australian territory of New Guinea on the 23rd of January 1942. Japan's objective in this campaign was the colonial capital of Port Moresby on the south coast, as its capture would neutralise the Allies' main forward base and could be used to launch direct intervention attacks within the Timor strength. General Douglas MacArthur, Supreme Commander Allied Forces Southwest Pacific, knew this and was determined to hold it. And while the newly elected Australian Prime Minister, the Honourable John Curtin, negotiated with Winston Churchill for the return of what remained of the AIF in North Africa back to Australia, it fell to the 49th Battalion of Queensland, 53rd Battalion from New South Wales, and the 39th Battalion from Victoria to garrison Port Mosby and hold the line to the coming invasion. Now, I've covered this in a TikTok video before, that despite what the wartime propaganda was saying, Australia was in no actual risk of being invaded by the Japanese. And despite the sudden and rapid collapse of the European colonial powers of Britain and the Netherlands in the South Pacific, inciting a wave of victory fever in some mid-level naval officers who suggested that Australia should be invaded to prevent its use as an allied base, these conversations never went anywhere, with the Japanese army labelling them as gibberish as the invasion of mainland Australia would have required Japan stripping the garrisons of China and Manchuria, and the naval general staff lambasted the plan as they lacked the shipping to undertake such an act. Instead, by mid-March 1942, the plan had become to isolate Australia from the United States by occupying the islands on Australia's northeast. New Caledonia, Samoa and Fiji, in order to force supply convoys to take the longer route around New Zealand, which would have used more supplies than they were actually transporting. By April, the Japanese launched Operation Mo, which was the four-pronged attempt to capture Port Moresby by both land and sea. Most of these prongs were to take islands in and around what is now Papua New Guinea in order to secure resources or lines of communication, and were for the most part successful. That is, of course, until the Battle of Coral Sea on the 4th to 8th of May, which destroyed enough of the naval assets to force the amphibious force to turn back. Port Mosey was safe, at least for the time being. This didn't stop waves of panic rippling across Australia at the thought of the Japanese invading. This was propagated by the discovery of Australian pound notes on dead Japanese soldiers in New Guinea, minted in Japan, and was used as evidence of an upcoming invasion. In reality, this occupation money was intended to be used in the captured Australian territories, not the mainland. Instead of forcing their South Pacific acquisitions to use the yen, they elected to allow their new subjects as part of the Japanese economic co-prosperity sphere, which was just a fancy name for swapping a European colonial overlord for a Japanese one, to continue using whatever currency they had already been using. So Japan minted rupees, pesos, pounds and guilders with postmarks of the Japanese government as a way of keeping the populations under control. In response to the defeats at Coral Sea and the decisive defeat at the Battle of Midway on the 6th to 8th of June, the Japanese then attempted a limited seaborne landing at Buna in July and Milne Bay in August, from which a direct assault on Port Mosby overland could be possible. While the roughly 100-strong Allied force at Buna was routed, the Japanese were handed their first decisive defeat on land by a force comprised mainly of militiamen of the 7th and 14th Infantry Brigades and the 18th Infantry Brigade of the Australian Imperial Force. Almost prophetically, before these invasions, Commander-in-Chief Australian Military Forces General Sir Thomas Blamey 
under the advice of General MacArthur, stated that it was time for the Australians to go on the offensive, and instructed Major General Basil Morris, commanding officer of the 8th Military District, if you recall, the 8th Military District was the administrative area for Papua and New Guinea, and on the 29th of June, he was ordered to cross the Owen Stanley Ranges, a mountain range that runs east-west across the island, and secure the Papuan administrative post of Kokoda, as it possessed the only airfield in the middle of the island, and in doing so would enshrine that location in Australia's history. The task fell to Captain Sam Templeton and the inexperienced B Company 39th Battalion to cross the Owen Stanley Ranges along the Kokoda Trail, an unmapped expanse measured in hours travelled, not by miles or yards. Now I can already hear the comments from the majority of my listeners. How dare I call Kokoda the Kokoda Trail? Well, the answer is simple. To generations of Australians, it will always be referred to as the track. The battle honour for this campaign, the official gazetted name for this stretch of real estate, the Papua New Guinean government, the Australian army and the Australian war memorial all classify it as Kokoda Trail, and the term was adopted by the Battles Nomenclature Committee as the official British Commonwealth Battle Honour in October 1957. During the war, however, it didn't have an official name for the path leading from Port Moresby to Boona via Kokoda, and was known interchangeably as Track, Trail or Road, and for simplicity's sake, I'll just refer to it as the sources do. Just before we continue, here's a word from one of our sponsors. This episode was made possible thanks to the generous support from our backers, whose donations go towards paying for distribution and streaming costs, the digitization and procurement of records, as well as everything else that goes into making the podcast. And if you enjoy what we do here at I Was Only Doing My Job and want to support the podcast directly and get some sweet rewards in the process, follow the link in the episode description or visit our website to buy the podcast a coffee, either as a one-off or as an ongoing subscription. At the lowest tiers, you'll get episodes early and ad-free, and at higher tiers, you'll get a mention in the episode and even the ability to suggest future topics. For more information, check the link in the episode description or check out www.thedocnetwork.net. And now, let's get back to the show. Japanese forces from the South Seas Detachment landed at Gona on the 21st of July and quickly moved inland. The first fighting occurred between the 39th and elements of the Papuan Infantry Battalion two days later. While they were reinforced by battalions of the 30th and 21st Brigades, it was poorly equipped, had not yet developed effective jungle warfare tactics, and was fighting at the very end of a very long and difficult supply line. Despite the number of desperate delaying actions were fought by Australians, they withdrew along the trail, and unfortunately both the commanding officer and the second-in-command of the 39th were killed in the retreat. After a disastrous attempt to recapture Kokoda, the Australian forces fell back to Isarava. During this time, Major Ralph Honor was still overseeing training and on the 1st of August 1942 was overseeing the training of the 38th Battalion Citizens Military Force. There he received orders to return to Perth. On his arrival, he was informed that he was promoted to temporary Lieutenant Colonel and ordered to report to Port Moresby and then assume command of the 39th Australian Infantry Battalion upon arrival. At the time, most people would have been unaware of Kokoda, and Honor was no exception. It was also unlikely that he would have heard of Isarava, where the unit he was supposed to take command was located, and if he had any knowledge of the 39th Militia Battalion that he was supposed to command. After spending one final day with Marjorie, Honor collected his bags and flew from Perth to Seduna, then from Seduna to Parafield, then to Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Townsville, then finally via Cadley in a flying boat to Port Moresby, arriving there on the 5th of August three days later. 
Remember in the story of honorary Air Commodore Sir Charles Kingsford Smith, he did the same flight in about a day non-stop. On his arrival, Honor received orders to replace Major Alan Cameron, who had been sent forward from the 30th Brigade to assume command on the 4th of August in the interim. He also was to take command of not only the 39th, but of Marubra Force, which was the code name for the ad hoc infantry force that had been created out of the 39th, a Papuan Infantry Battalion, the 53rd Infantry Battalion, and the 21st Brigade, which comprised of the forces of the 2nd 14th, 2nd 16th, and 2nd 27th Battalions Australian Imperial Force. He arrived at Ishirava unannounced at 13.30 on the 16th of August 1942, and as the unit was engaged in battle at the time, there was no parade nor a formal change of command ceremony. According to his adjutant, Lieutenant Keith Lovett, he, quote, walked up to a group of us standing around at Ishirava. I walked over to him, I saw he was an officer, and I said, can I help you in any way? He said, yes, I'm Colonel Honor, I'm your new CO, and I'd like you to take me around and introduce me to the company commanders. He told me briefly about his history and what he'd done, and I thought, well, that's enough for me, let's go, unquote. Honor was ordered to hold the northern side of the Owen Stanley Range until reinforced, and that is what he did. Commanding a ragged, exhausted collection of young men who had, when all seemed lost, were decisively reinforced by an elite battalion of the Australian Imperial Force, who, together, were about to write a critical chapter in Australia's military history. And that is where we're going to end this episode. Next episode, we'll see Honor's involvement in the Kokoda campaign. And there you have it, folks. That's part three of the life, service, and legacy of Colonel Ralph Honor. Catch you next time, friends. Bye. Works cited in this episode are Ralph Honor, Kokoda Hero by Peter Brune. The Good Soldier by Field Marshal Earl Wavell. He's Not Coming South by Peter Stanley. The Australian Militia at War, 1939-1945 by James Morrison. The Making and Breaking of the Post-Federation Australian Army, 1901-1909 by Craig Stockings. The Official History of the Australia's Involvement in the Second World War. The Service Record of Ralph Honor. And the Unit Diaries of the 2nd 11th Australian Infantry Battalion, the 19th Australian Infantry Brigade, and the 6th Australian Division, and the website of the Australian War Memorial. Thanks for listening to the I Was Only Doing My Job Australia's Military History Podcast, a Doc Network production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gangdangara people whose elders have passed on knowledge for thousands of years, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. This episode was written, researched, produced, directed, and audio engineered by me, Ross, with additional research done by Laurie Favell of My Silent Hero. If you do know someone whose story needs to be told, feel free to leave a comment on an episode or send us an email at IWasOnlyDoingMyJobPod at gmail.com. If you like what we do here and you want to support this podcast, the best thing you can do is share this with a friend or leave a review on your favorite podcast platform as it really helps others find the show. And if you want to join in on the conversation, join us over on Discord. And if you want more content, including show notes, photos, transcripts, and my various adventures finding memorials dotted around Australia, head over to our website at www.thedocnetwork.net and follow the show on all our social media pages at IWODMJ. Don't worry, there are links to everything in the show notes. Join me personally for more bite-sized history over on TikTok and pretty much everywhere else at Doc Winters. All opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of any entity, agency, or organization. It is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike 4.0 International License. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Bye.